part of mushroom hunting is like the buzz is finding it. It's hard. Like so, going out it, for me, it's always like the next best spot. It's always just around the corner. So like in the hills here, I've been walking for like three hours, but for me, it's like oh, over that hill, it could be the spot. <laughs> and it's like part of that is hunt, like hunting, isn't it? Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is your host, Tristan Stevenson. Today, I'm speaking with Evan Strove and James Wood. Evan is the winner of Australia's world-class bartender competition this year and is a bartender at the critically acclaimed RE, a sustainability-focused bar in Sydney, Australia. James is a professional forager uh, from a company called Totally Wild, who run foraging courses here in the UK. On this episode, we discuss the benefits of using foraged and seasonal ingredients in your bar. We cover the law and etiquette of foraging. We talk about various different ingredients that are coming into season, both here in the Northern Hemisphere and where Evan is in the Southern Hemisphere at the time of recording. And there's also quite a lot of discussion around mushrooms, uh, mostly because of me and my own misadventures with mushroom picking. Picking? Picking? Foraging. Picking, most of those things. This is a great primer on foraging and a super inspiring episode that will help get you excited about bringing a little bit more nature into your bar. Enjoy. Okay, I am joined here by James Wood and Evan Strove. Welcome to the podcast, gents. Lovely to be here. Yeah, lovely to have you. Um, so, Evan, you are beamed in from Australia. Um, and we're recording UK time, it's morning, but for you, you've just finished shift, right? About 11 p.m., is it? Right and early at 11 p.m. Peak bartender hour. Um, we're hoping to get a lot from you uh, at this point of the night. And James, <laughs> um, I've got to say, you are coming in from Tuscany, um, which has made everyone jealous. Um, are you on holiday there or is it a work trip? Is it foraging trip? It's a foraging trip, yeah, yeah. So we're going to start running some events from here from next year, hopefully. So I've been out for the past two days just walking around the woods here looking for mushrooms, really. I've got a big basket of honey fungus inside. I found a bit earlier today. <laughs> nice. Is it, what is it, like porcini? Is that season at the moment in Tuscany or are they a bit late for that maybe? I don't know. Uh, it's a bit, to be honest, it's a bit dry. So it rained, it hammered it down yesterday because we were joking that we brought the, the weather from Manchester which is just <laughs> solid, solid rain. Um, so it hammered it down yesterday, but I think it's been so dry that the ground's just soaked up instantly. So there was a couple of tiny mushrooms coming up today, but they're not at a decent size. But apparently porcinis haven't done too well in Tuscany this year. Yeah, well, I'm, I've got to tell you, I've, um, I've moved house recently and I've got, I'm lucky enough to have a bit of woods um, with, with the property and I have been hauling in a lot of mushrooms um, oh really? But we'll come back to that in a bit. Um, I do want to talk about mushrooms in drinks as well. Um, see if Evan's got any ideas on that one because it's such a big part of the the foragers' basket. But um, James, perhaps first, could you maybe give us a bit of background into how you got into foraging? Yeah, so uh, went to. I mean, I was lucky enough as a child to, to grow up in the in a, you know in a small village, five minute walk from from the middle of nowhere. Really, so we used to as children play with all these things, but I didn't know what what was edible, what wasn't edible, what was safe to work with, what wasn't, because, I mean, I'm not sure what it's like in Australia, but in the UK, it's it's very much, people are quite scared of wild food, especially mushrooms, and it's, you can look at it, you can just about touch it, never, ever think about eating it. 
So we used to go out and play in a, a woodland. We used to play hide and seek. And when I was a kid, we used to go home saying it was a, the chicken Kiev's woodland because it stink of garlic. You know, like you slice over a chicken <laughs> Kiev and you've got like, garlic um, butter on the inside. And, uh, you know, you strip down at the door because you wouldn't be allowed in because it smells so bad. And it was only when I started looking into foraging maybe 12 years ago that I found out, you know, it's wild garlic, absolutely full of wild garlic. And then the same, the other things we had like little twigs we'd call whippy twigs and found out they were fireweed. So I was always involved in it in some way, but didn't know it was foraging at the time. So it was only 12 years ago that I actually got properly into it. And it was through a through an art project, actually. It was called the Forage Book Project. So we made a book entirely from wild materials. So paper out of mushrooms, ink out of oak galls, uh, paint out of flowers and roots, glues out of seaweeds. It was great. I guess my appreciation for, for foraging kind of began... As a, as a younger bartender, I was kind of beginning to enter that, that creative sphere of bartending where I was asked to contribute to cocktail menus and I was starting to think about cocktail competitions and uh, naturally began looking at the kind of native produce that was growing in Australia and has always grown in Australia. Um, and that led to, I think, a greater appreciation of our country and and the produce that grew on it and I, I began to look at chefs and I saw seeing with local foragers and I kind of wanted to be part of that world and be a participant in that world um, and to be able to identify you know the things that kind of grow under our under our nose and on our on our and I think it kind of hit its peak uh, when I was I was general manager at, at uh, rest in peace, the amazing, lovely bar, Bulletin Plates, uh, a venue that, that changed its menu based on what was fresh and seasonal and kind of intertwining uh, produce that, that is literally available on the street around the corner and intertwining that with it with a daily menu just made. That's kind of where it hit its, its peak for me. Um, but yeah, it's it's been a part of my kind of creative process ever since I was a young bartender and still is today. Yeah, nice. Well, what do you think um, are the benefits of, you know, using foraged ingredients on menus as opposed to sort of going through conventional routes to market? Um, I mean, there's the seasonality side of it as well, but I guess you can be seasonal but not foraged. Um, and I suppose to some extent you can be foraged but not seasonal, like you can preserve stuff and then use it at a different time of year. But what, what do you, where do you think the benefit of, of foraging is? I, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the, uh, the kind of supply chain is like in, in the UK, but for us, essentially farmers in, in Sydney or in Melbourne or in any kind of capital city, there's this, this central kind of market and, and farmers come to the market and negotiate price with a wholesaler who then sells that produce onto the providors and these are the guys that deliver you know your apples and your passion fruits and your pineapples each morning and uh, that's reliable and produce kind of passing through that many hands is uh, but it kind of gen it does generate a bit of a, a disconnect in terms of our attachment to that produce and the land that we're on so I guess in, in its kind of essence and most simple form, foraging kind of develops a understanding of the 
land that you are you are physically standing on and you develop a a greater understanding of seasonality um i guess a good example of that is is in australia we have a, a little hilly which is uh this bright purple berry that's a balance between sweet and sour uh and it's kind of a, a communal understanding that we pick that and we forage that after it's rained it's at its peak it's, it's full of juice it's bright and it's vibrant uh but that that kind of knowledge or that transmission of knowledge you just you don't get through ordering through an app for the next day from the markets so are you and your team heading out and, and picking this kind of stuff yeah fairly regularly not not you know, not every day, but at least, you know, once or twice a fortnight. Are you using foragers to get this stuff as well? Or are you doing, is it all kind of done in-house? It's fairly collaborative. So, so initially when I was at Bulletin Place, we, um, we, there's a, there's a legendary Italian man named Diego, who is, I guess, I guess Australia, or not Australia's, but Sydney's most well-known kind of foraging. And, it initially began with the team uh, engaging with him and going out and doing workshops as part of a training program. Uh, now at Re, we've got we've got a kind of a collection of like-minded individuals who operate every day in the foraging world that we will go out with, uh, who will kind of educate us on where to where to procure certain ingredients, certain produce, and then we can kind of go out and do that ourselves. What are the um, legalities of foraging? I mean, I, I, I want to sort of understand this in Australia, but also to you as well, James, in terms of the UK and indeed Tuscany or any other areas that you're familiar with. Um, where, where, where do we sit with it in Australia? Is it okay to just go pick stuff anywhere you like? It's a bit of, to be honest, it's a bit of a grey area. I mean, mm. I, I guess the the, pri- the primary rule is don't trespass. If you're yeah, if you're walking on if you're walking onto private property, it's just common common courtesy to ask if there's a a vine hanging over a fence. Uh, it's probably not foraging. You're probably just nicking someone's raspberries. Stealing. <laughs> 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 um, I think the easiest way to kind of navigate the legalities is just to communicate with with local council often you know you've got plants that are you know seemingly wild and seemingly there for, for that might have been planted there for a specific reason um but yeah don't trespass communicate with local council it is it is a bit of a gray area there's no there's no rule saying you can't you know go out into a field and forage mushrooms but um i, I guess exercising common sense do you have um? Do you have a lot of like common land in Australia, like as in sort of land that doesn't really it belong to anyone, and therefore it's sort of like right to roam and all that kind of thing. Yep, loads of loads of kind of public and um, public gardens, uh, mm. a lot of private property as well. But uh, where I operate is in the in the middle of Sydney, so if you're if you're going onto public land, you're probably going into someone's backyard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's, there's 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 so much stuff that kind of creeps through the cracks and grows on street corners, and there's a lot that uh, that a lot that's in kind of public parkland as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so James, what's the situation in the UK with it? Where can I go and where can't I go? 
where should I go even? <laughs> or is that too much to divulge? Very similar. Your secrets? <laughs> no, it's very, very similar. It's all quite, quite a gray area. The, the exact same as Evans just said. But um, from a personal point of view, so you, Tristan, you can go out and you can pick pretty much anywhere. If it's private land, you just need to ask again for permission. Um, but then you get shared space. So it's quite interesting you're saying about that. So over in Norfolk, there's certain areas that you get something called common commoner rights or common rights. And you have rights to to pick on any land that's that's out there um, that's classed as common land. And you, you're actually allowed to pick and sell, which is really interesting because that's where it gets a bit more complicated when you come around to selling produce. Um, mm. That's when you start to need land licenses, uh, confirmation from landowners and stuff like that. So like picking schedules that the change really from from harvesting for your individual for harvesting for other people is quite interesting. I've always been intrigued how restaurants do it with their with their staff going out and picking because you're kind of ha- harvesting for yourself, but ultimately you might go on a menu or into a drink, and then you are kind of starting to sell wild produce without saying it's five pound for a hundred grams. You are kind of, in a way, saying it. But for me, it's all about common sense. It's like um, there's part of, I don't know if you guys do it, Evan, on, on the land you go to, but it's like there's a weird part of trading. So you could say, like, we might go onto a bit of land and we want to pick, um, I don't know, maybe Japanese quince or something. They've got big quince bushes. So we'll go on and we'll harvest, you know, quite a lot of kilograms. And we might say, well, you're not going to use this produce. It's here. It's going to hit the floor. It's going to rot. Like, we're going to make some some quince jelly. And how about I drop you by, you know, two kilograms of quince jelly that you wouldn't have made anyway. So you're getting something quite nice out yeah. of it. And I'm allowed to come onto your yeah, land. That's and pick. A nice way and doing like, it. As, as soon as you start doing that, it's like people become a lot more flexible and like, oh, actually, oh yeah, that sounds quite nice. I wouldn't mind a bit of quince jelly. Mm. That's a lovely way of doing it. Like if you can avoid money ch- exchanging hands and like permits and licenses, and you know, just pay for things um, through the uh, you know through through food basically, then um, that's wonderful. I think absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean we. When we when we forage, it's usually it's usually quite small amounts, but occasionally there's, you know, someone questioning what we're doing, and it's usually a quick explanation that, you know, it's it's going to go into a kombucha back at the bar, or it's going to, you know, go into a, a gin cocktail, and most of the time people are people are interested. You have that conversation with them, and they they're they're less kind of. Uh, they they question they question what you're doing less. They question your motives a little bit less. Um, speaking of Japanese quince, uh, I have some of that in my garden, and they're falling on the ground at the moment. So, I, I have this sort of running <laughs> joke with a, with some friends. Like, does anyone know anything to do with quince other than make quince jelly? Um, so, if either of you have got any ideas what what use a quince has besides being on a cheese board yeah. in the form of jelly? Then let me know. <laughs> I mean, I've got a friend who's just who's just started making. Um, I, I guess it's classed as a gin because everyone's going a bit gin crazy in the UK still. I don't know how the the trend's still going, but he's making this alcohol out of it, mm. which yeah is officially classed as a gin, but it's very dissimilar to it. And he puts quince as his as fragrant element, so it's almost like it's almost like a perfume, isn't it? It's like really favorite fragrant, and that's his his base botanical really that goes into it, and the flavors really good. The quince comes through very very strong. Oh, interesting, cool. 
give that a go. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I was planning on setting up a gin distillery with, just based on the few quintes, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, I will bear that in mind. So the answer is no. We only have quince jelly is basically it and gin. That's pretty um, much it, yeah. That's it. <laughs> I mean, they, I think they make nice garnishes, actually. Um, sort of like, you know, sliced up probably be quite nice as a garnish. Um, we, we talked a little bit about legalities, which seems to be pretty good. Actually, James, can you recommend... Um, any sort of resources for where you can find these, what did you call them, common grounds? Um, where, we, you know, common people land. can visit and sort There's of very freely. few of them. Common land. And I think if there was common land, you would already know. So it's usually like, historically, right. it's common land. So people wouldn't like to talk about it, but it would be like... Like Dartmoor, for example. Yeah, yeah, exactly like that. And it would be the yeah. people who locally live there would know about it, and most other people wouldn't. Um, Resources-wise, I think um, Natural England will have some yeah, some serious resources about the legalities of harvesting. I think for mushrooms, I think it's like 1.7 kilograms is what you're allowed to legally take for a personal consumption. I've heard of like people going out and picking everything so they don't know what it is and they'll have a sorter. So they'll go out, you know, three or four people and they'll pick 40 kilograms of mushroom. They're literally everything that's lining them up the floor. And they'll have one chap, he's a sorter, and they take all it back to him and he says, edible, not edible, edible, not edible, and they throw the non-edibles away. So, you know, as long as you're not doing ah, that. So they can send out unskilled people to, to pick. Exactly. And then they, yeah. you just need one shaman of the of the kind of tribe it, yeah. in order to decide who lives and dies, basically, based on the <laughs> mu- mushroom toxic- toxicity. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> I've never met one of these That's people. not dissimilar. I've heard of them. Right. Okay. Heard of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's not dissimilar to what I did in my own garden, just taking it back to mushrooms again. Um, so uh, I went around and just picked everything I could and not because I, I just didn't know what they were. And then um, there's a pretty good app um, now. I, I tell you what, the apps have come on so much in the last few years because I remember trying to find an app about four years ago to identify mushrooms and there really wasn't anything there. Um, but there's one now where you can take a picture of it and uh, from like two three different angles and then it tells you what mushroom it is and if you if you it shows you obviously loads of pictures of that same mushroom so you can sort of agree with it or you can say no that's not it and then it gives you an alternative and you sort of whittle it down in that way so I think I picked like seven different types of mushroom and only one of them was edible um which was an amber funnel cup I think it's called um Sort of looks like a giant chanterelle. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I've been eating them and I'm still alive. So so that was your mushroom sorter. You don't even need a person anymore. Yeah. You've got the app. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I am the unskilled person and the app is the shaman <laughs> in all of this. <laughs> but it's wonderful. Like the feeling of going out and finding your food, even like for me, it's only, you know, just near my doorstep. But like, it, you know, in any way where you're sort of finding something that's there, growing naturally i just think it sort of takes you back to that whole hunter gatherer experience that you know you know obviously we're all descendants of that of the you know hundreds of thousands of years of that process of of searching and finding and then sitting down and eating and i love that kind of that sensation of going back to nature and and sort of i mean you know i'm not a hunter but in a way i am a mushroom hunter and indeed a mushroom killer Um, but that must be one of the things that drew you to it, James. I mean, this idea of like, you know, going out and gathering. It's, 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 there's something so special about the experience of it, I think. 
Absolutely, yeah. It's almost a little bit overwhelming. I mean, I've never taken somebody out mushroom hunting and they haven't been completely obsessed when they've stumbled across something for the first time. And that's, I just think it's something innate in every person, like you say, because we've done it for millennia. And it's almost just kind of written into us that there's something incredible about yeah. finding your food. That it just gives you this. Well, yeah. And part of mushroom hunting is like the buzz is finding it. It's odd. Like, so going out, for me, it's always like the next best spot is always just around the corner. And, you know, so like in the hill yeah. here, I've been walking for like three hours. But for me, it's like, oh, over that hill, it could be the spot. <laughs> and it's like part of that is hunt, like hunting, isn't it? Yeah. And because, I mean, we're sort of focusing on mushrooms a little bit here, but I mean, a big part of what foragers do, I guess, but especially this time of year in, in Northern Hemisphere. But um, like, they are camouflaged like they're difficult to see a lot of them um and so there's this wonderful it's like a magic eye you're sort of staring at forest floor and you've got all these different colored leaves and then suddenly you're like oh there they are and you see one and, and because you've sort of managed to focus on the shape of one whatever weird shape that is suddenly it's like there's a load more and it's like magic but that is true you see yeah so i always think it takes at least 30 minutes to 45 minutes to get your eye in so you start start looking past the foliage start looking past the leaf coverage and then you start put yeah picking out and then you could literally you turn around walk the 45 minutes you've come and it's a completely different walk how did i miss this and how didn't i see those amethyst deceivers and then what as if I walk past that massive budgie. So are there, um, we talked a bit about legalities, are there any other sort of best like code of conduct or etiquette or practice that sort of all foragers should really adhere to? So for all the guys we work with, we always have a, a base rule that we say don't pick anything more than 40%. And obviously on trees, it's very difficult to pick more than 40% because over 40% is above you. But I think if you just have that as a base rule for everything and then you can't really go wrong. Yeah, I think it's more more or less the same with, with us in the context of a bar. You know, it's exercise a little bit of common sense and, and don't take too much. Um, I remember you guys have both probably heard of heard of Mad, Mad Mondays or or the Mad the Mad um, initiative founded by Rene Redzepi. Oh, yeah. uh, and about about two years ago, uh, we held one in Sydney. And it was all kind of focused on native bush uh, food culture. And there's a man named, uh, an indigenous elder named uh, Uncle Max Harrison. And his piece of advice to the audience was that if you come across uh, a, uh, a rye berries or lily pilly and you shake it once, you shake it twice, you shake it three times, whatever kind of falls off is yours and whatever didn't kind of still belongs to the earth and still belongs to mother nature. And I think, I think that the kind of of that is, is to just not, not to pillage the land that you're on, but to be, you know, take only what you need, give back more than you take away. Uh, in a commercial setting, we're using this, this produce to make money. So ensure that you're educating your consumers, you're telling a story and you're using only what you require or you're only what you need. Yeah, I think I, the thing about shaking the fruit tree as well, and I think this is probably something that's pretty consistent amongst fruit, is like if it comes away freely, it probably means it's about peak ripeness, right? It's usually it's certainly the case with like orchard fruit, isn't it? Like apples and pears. Um, it's when they're sort of just prime for falling that they're usually about at their best, isn't it? Yeah, that, it means that they're ready. 
But yeah, I think it's it's just a, it's a common sense approach. You know, the last thing you want to see is a bunch of people out there ripping all of the fruit off a off a tree. It's it's almost kind of hurtful seeing that kind of thing, isn't it? Do you see it much? So at times you've been out to the park or to the woods and you've you've stumbled into you know a handful of people doing that. You don't necessarily see people doing it, but in the middle of Sydney, most of the most of the forage ingredients we get are, are you know flowers and herbs and and some spices. Fruit trees are fairly limited, and you might walk past one one day, and then you come back the next day, and most of the fruit's gone, which is pretty, pretty, pretty sad. Um, so, sort of splitting this question between like northern hemisphere and southern, um, perhaps um, James, if you want to go first, could you recommend something? We're recording this in um, mid-November, so maybe you could recommend some ingredients that are coming into season or about right for the taking at this point in the year and maybe in the sort of month or two to follow because um, it's, it's winter um, so it's probably not a time of year that most people associate with an abundance of, of natural resources for foraging uh, what, what, what are you picking at the moment uh, so there is stuff still coming in and out of season like you say it's not core season so we've not got absolutely loads of stuff but um, we just wrote up a really nice article about um, article about how to eat your Christmas tree. So Douglas <laughs> for pine, Nordman for um, spruce, juniper, things like this. So what you can do with your conifers, and there's absolutely loads around, and they'll stay in season all winter. I mean, they'll stay in season all year, but they're the kind of core things that are around. And from a bar point of view, Evan, I don't know if you guys get any sort of fir, Douglas fir or Nordman fir over there, but the flavour is like clementines. If you were to munch on it, it's like it's shocking because everyone's got Christmas trees when it gets yeah. around to the season. But if you actually pull off a couple of needles and give it a chew, you've got this like really strong clementine kind of lemon zest flavour. And yeah, from a food point of view, it's a fantastic ingredient. It's sorbets, uh, yeah, syrups, anything oh. that you might use to have lemon juice or clementines for. Perfect, perfect for behind the bar. We're in, we're in uh, the cusp of so not not citrus season so being able to utilize things uh that have this in inherent citrus quality is really important right now so we don't get douglas fir but around the corner from the bar is this this long kind of row lemon myrtle trees uh which i i I don't i don't think it might have been kind of domesticated elsewhere but is an australian native ingredient it's the highest concentration of limonene in the world that that defining lemon flavor uh, so we we utilize a lot of things like that in replacement of citrus when it's out of season uh, at the moment we've got at the moment we've got fresh fresh jasmine literally on every street um i went to a went to a park the other day it was thai basil everywhere um native mint native rosemary there's, yeah, so at the moment we're in we're in kind of peak peak season. That um lemon myrtle is uh, you might be able to answer this, James. That sounds like the same stuff. That you, it's really popular in Sardinia, um, and that grows wild everywhere. And they, it's it's super fragrant stuff. Um, it's like this sort of hardy bush. And what they often do with it there, that there's a, there's a company that makes liqueurs out of it, um, both from the berries, which are like purpley coloured, and from the leaves um but what they do with it is they use it a lot in cooking not necessarily 
directly into the food, but they might use it for presentation. So I've been there before where they've done like pork and they take, they cook it and then they lay it on the leaves to sort of steam in the leaves to impart this flavor into the, and it is citrusy and herbal and amazing. Um, that sounds like similar stuff to what you're describing. Yeah, it does sound quite similar flavor-wise. And that's what I quite like. It's like, you know, each area you go to, so if you were to go around Sydney or anywhere in the world, really, it's like there's going to be similar flavors-ish, but you're utilizing what's local to there. So it's like you could go, you could genuinely go with one cocktail. So you develop one cocktail and you could take that cocktail to Brazil. And it's like, I've got to make that, but with the local ingredients here. So it'll be different, but it'll be very similar. And then you mm. take it somewhere. Else. I think that would be really cool. Well, I think that's one of the cool things about um, being a cocktail bar using seasonal and forest ingredients because most drinks follow sort of one of like a dozen different formulas, you know, in terms of sweet, sour, bitter, spirit, fizz, balance, you know, there's, there's only a kind of a dozen drink families. And um, so you can very easily take out one aromatic liqueur and replace it with a homemade one that was from a foraged ingredient or, <clears throat> you know, a, a take out a citrus juice and replace it with something else that's sour and in season and local. Um, and that's, it's such a fun way to do mixology because you can't really go that far wrong as you, as long as you understand where your, you know, uniquely foraged ingredient sits in comparison to the traditionally used ingredient in that drink. Isn't that right, Evan? Absolutely. It's almost like a, um, uh, like a Mr. Potato Head method. As, as Tris said, there are, there are kind of families. And once you have a bit of a grasp on those families and a bit of a grasp on flavor, it's sort of sub things in and sub things out. And I mean, that's, that's the beauty of, of being able to travel. It's, it's not necessarily recognizing ingredients, but recognizing flavors that are similar and finding places for them in, in the drinks that you're creating. Uh, it kind of breeds a very specific type of creativity. Mm. It's really cool. The, um, the Christmas tree thing's interesting. Douglas fir and all that. I've, I've had a few gins with Douglas fir in because being piney, it's not that far removed from juniper. But it's interesting what you say about clementine because clementines have quite a powerful, in, the, in Europe and UK anyway, have quite a strong association with Christmas anyway, don't they? So you wonder if that's an accident, if, you know, perhaps in the past people were like, eh, you know what, find these little oranges that taste just like chewing on that pine, but you don't get it stuck in your teeth so much. So maybe we should transition over uh, around Christmas time and stop eating the Christmas trees. We'll just, t- just put them in our lounges <laughs> instead. <laughs> But it's funny that there's that sort of, um, you know, taste connection between them. Um, and I guess that's part of the allure of seasonality, isn't it? Some, a lot of the ingredients that we find in any given season, it, I guess just through association, taste like that season, you know? You get all these sort of fresh floral things in the spring and, you know, it's more like sweeter more concentrated darker tasting stuff in the in the autumn and through to the winter um i think there's something to be said for eating the seasons um to sort of experience the year as it's intended to be absolutely and that makes you look forward to the seasons as well so like you know mushroom season comes along maybe got a couple in spring a couple in late summer but it's like when you come into you know september october and you know it's mushroom season it's like you know everything it's mushrooms. <laughs> Every meal has some <laughs> element in. 
and um, yeah. and then that's when you start to think, you know, how can I get it into this? And I, you know, I made like five weeks ago, ended up finding because I was saying we had a, a great season in the UK, Porcini, making a Porcini vodka. So it's like a Porcini caramel vodka, and I'd seen some chefs make like mm. a version of caramel, Oof. and then some chefs make um, a version of caramel ice cream with Porcini. I was like, right, I'm just putting vodka with a little bit of brown sugar, and the flavour was amazing. But the lingering flavour was porcini, which was like slightly odd. But again, quite nice. Yeah. That's when you're looking forward to, to autumn and then spring's coming around, you're looking forward to wild garlic and everything's wild garlic then. It's like you're living the year through these seasons, aren't you? And through these flavours. Yeah, that's the best way. Um, Evan, you've ever put mushrooms in mixed drinks? Since we keep going back to mushrooms and they are so tasty. Um, have you ever had any success with that? Because it's a challenging ingredient for cocktails, isn't it? It is. It is. I think I've made, I made, um, honestly, I've made one mushroom drink uh, in my life and it was called Play That Fungi Music. (laughs) 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 Uh, And basically took mushrooms and kind of dehydrated them, infused them into a, into a dashi, uh, which is, you know, like a a mushroom infusion, which operates as the base of a, a, a soup and sweetened it with honey. So you almost made like a, a honey syrup, but rather than using water, we used like a mushroom dashi and used that and in a, in a stirred down whiskey cocktail. So you've got, you know, you've got the depth and the, the weight of the whiskey and then you've got the earthiness of the room. Um, you've got a bit of, bit of vermouth in there. But that was the only time I've ever used mushroom in a cocktail. I, I've seen it used a few times. I think, I think my... Um, my boss Matt Wiley used it. I think there was a, a cheese. There's all these things, but uh, only once for me. I um I remember once judging a world class competition in Spain. This was about ten years ago, and um, the competitors had to use Ronza Kappa, and we got round to the final competitor of the day, and it had been a long day of tasting with shall we say, drinks of variable quality. And um, we the final competitor gets up and he starts talking and it was translation and it became clear that he was going to make a drink with mushrooms. It's, t- it's a tough call being the last competitor of the day anyway because your palate's pretty fatigued. And, um, you know, you're kind of, kind of ready for a beer, uh, you know, to kind of wash down some of these cocktails. And um, he gets up to make this sort of short, sticky mushroom cocktail with, you know, Ronza Kappa. And um, he ended up winning the competition. It was an insanely good drink. Um, I, I can't remember for the life of me exactly what he did, but it was simple. It was sort of old-fashioned in principle. But he'd somehow made this delicious, earthy, mushroom-flavoured um, syrup or, or tincture or whatever. Um, and I, I've thought ever since, actually, I think rum is probably the best candidate for mixing with mushrooms because certain rums have that funk to them you know, that plays in well to the sort of flavor profile of, of mushrooms, especially when they're properly mushroomy as, as wild mushrooms tend to be. The mushrooms you get at supermarkets, they're, they're mushrooms in appearance, but that's about it, right? They're just kind of taking up sort of textural space in a dish, but not really contributing much flavor. You start stucking wild mushrooms or dried wild mushrooms into, you know, a casserole or a bolognese or um, <laughs> in a cocktail. And that, that's when you get to know what a mushroom tastes like, you know? It's a game changer different so many different textures as well and flavors in wild i always think that store-bought mushroom you get is, is polystyrene in, in the shape of a mushroom 
with you know a very <laughs> loose flavour. But when you go into yeah, when you go into wild, you've just got yeah, so many textures and so many mildly different flavours that you can you can get carried away, which is exactly what we should do. Yeah, for sure. Um, James, are there any other ingredients from any time around the year um, that you sort of would re- recommend to a cocktail bartender, something that perhaps they're not familiar with that would perform well in drinks, whether it's infusions or liqueurs or, you know, as a garnish? Yeah, so I think the key as well with, with food as well as drink, it's like substituting ingredients. But when we come into spring, we get absolutely loads of things. I mean, I'm just going through a quick list of things that we, we pick through the year here. And there's, there's masses of different things. Um, there's a really nice one that comes, it'd be like late spring, early summer. So it'd be like July. Um, and it's an edible flower that's actually, um, it changes color depending on pH. So you can, you can make a drink with it and it'll start off pink and depending on what you put in it, you can make it go bright red or you can turn it into blue. Um, yeah. With alkalines or acids, right? It's exactly. anthocyanin is the pigment, isn't it? Yeah. 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 That's it, yeah. So, but it says willow herb and, and the flowers of willow herb are specifically like they'll they're really dependent on pH. They will really change colour, which is quite nice and quite playful. You can mess around with that quite a bit. Obviously, elderflower is a bold flavour that, that's become quintessentially, or feels quintessentially English. Like everyone mm. goes mad for it when it comes into season. And what I quite like with those kind of ingredients is season for elderflower is three weeks. So it's like it's one of those you really have to make the most of it when it's in. And it comes and goes. And if you miss it, that's it. You've got to hang on till till next year comes. <laughs> when is it roughly? Yeah, you have to hang, hang on away. So you've got around late June, early July, and again, it depends if it hammers it down with rain. You might only get a week. Cool. Um, it's any any ingredients like along the same lines that are like super weird. Like I'm thinking something like bizarre that we may have never heard of before that you you know. Is, is is you you'd rate highly well there's some that are like bold flavors which you can get so like sweet sicily it's like an aniseed so anytime you're looking for aniseed you can get sweet sicily it's a great substitute for aniseed and it's in the course of fennel and that's something you'll find if you go you have to go slightly higher altitude so you're looking around the peak district or up in scotland um and it's a you know an invasive weed it's absolutely everywhere to the point you know we have, when we go out and pick it, we have farmers asking us if we'll go into their fields and pick it for them to get rid of it because there's just so much of the stuff. <laughs> but I always find it amazing because you don't go into the Peak District and then in my head, it's like everything should be made with aniseed <laughs> because you've got so much of this stuff. <laughs> but they'll chop it back and then plant the potatoes. It seems um, mental to me. See books on juice? Might have been something, I imagine, going through through bars a bit. Yeah. Yeah, bars get it. I've never tasted it, but I've I've seen it in in a bunch of liqueurs and gins. It's it's quite sour, isn't it? Super sour, yeah, yeah, super sour. Yeah, is that? Have you got any other recommendations for citrus alternatives? I mean, we mentioned obviously the sort of pine, Douglas fir, and and that, but because I think in in the UK, this is quite UK specific, I suppose. You know, one of the biggest burdens in terms of the sustainability side of things is that we have to import all this citrus. Um, so anything that bartenders can use that will substitute citrus, um, obviously with a different spin on it, I think is great. Um, so it'd be good to, to flag any of those besides the ones you've already mentioned. Yeah, yeah. So any of the sorrels, really. So you've got common sorrel, you've got um, lamb sorrel. They grow you know, in open fields. And then if you go to the woodlands, you've got wood sorrel. 
this looks a bit like it looks a bit like a clover that you'll find in the woods but that's got masses of, of, of lemon flavor we have wood sorrel in sydney and it as you said it just looks like a clover and for the most part people would just walk past it they wouldn't recognize it they have no idea what it is and it it grows on the on literally the side of the, the pavement here in Sydney. And then you just stick it through a juicer, do you, to get sort of juice, extract the juice out of it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. maybe a little bit of liquid with it and blend it up and then extract the juice. Mm. And you've almost got like, you do have like this slight grassy element to it, if that makes sense. Uh, so slight grassy, but then you do get this citrus that comes through, which is really nice. It's like clean. Cool. Um, Like, sort of a more general question about foraging. It's something that's sort of just occurred to me. But... I mean, if we think that sort of all ingredients at one point in time were wild uh, and then over the course of the years, we've sort of picked the ones that we want to cultivate and hybridize and improve upon and then, you know, eventually make available to all of us all the way through the year, wherever we are, pretty much. Do, do you think that, you know, we've already sort of selected the best ingredients in that case and actually the ones that we're foraging the ones that aren't sort of commercially grown are the ones that you know kind of been left by the wayside people have decided collectively for whatever reason that actually these are less desirable um than than the products that we you know readily available to us um it's it's a it's a hairy question in here in australia at, at the very least i think i think you could make the case that yes yes that's true but uh but there's 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 so much produce that is that is native to Australia that for you know many reasons our kind of colonial history or just you know just yeah there's there's many many reasons but it's kind of it's been swept under the under the rug for a very very long time and only now uh maybe in the last 5 or 10 years see bars and and restaurants really begin to appreciate it and I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a bit of a, a bit of a Eurocentric view that those kind of domesticated products are, you know, best or um, or you know best or better in any way. But there's there's so much that has grown here for fifty thousand years that is really kind of beginning to find the spotlight now. So yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I think. It, so then in that case, then Evan, do you wor- do you, do you worry then that that stuff is going to then start becoming commercially grown, and then it will sort of degrade the name? Um, absolutely, absolutely. I think I think the problem is that a lot of the a lot of the commercially grown stuff we have is it's sort of like a you know abomination of what it once was, right? I mean, most things are grown for for look um, and I guess disease resistance rather than taste. You only need to pick up a tomato or a mushroom at the supermarket to to really realise that. So do you do you worry that actually some of these indigenous ingredients are going to get you know adulterated and and marketed? Yes, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And then there's the you know the question of kind of intellectual property and, and historical ownership. How uh, how involved are indigenous Australians going to be in the ownership of of that produce? Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. You look at supermarket produce and thousands of years of domestic domestication uh, 
created a product that is, you know, really, really reliant on things like fertilizers. Fertilizers are awful for the planet and it is a, it is a diluted version of what that ingredient once was. Um, it re- it's a, it's a interesting question yeah i mean it's interesting because it sort of seems like in this pursuit of perfection of perfection of perfecting a tomato or a strawberry or whatever it might be um we've you know abused it so much that it's no longer what it once was um it sort of looks prettier perhaps than a wild strawberry would have looked but tastes nowhere near as good and so the knock-on effect of that is that we then have to return back to wild fruits and berries and herbs for something that actually tastes of something, right? <laughs> is that, do you think that's right, James? I mean, is there people growing already over in Australia, Evan, from the ingredients you've found that you pick wild? Is there people already growing that stuff over there? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, mo- a lot of the ingredients that we kind of forage, you can, you can, you can buy at the markets. A lot of them you can't. They're, yeah, they're completely different. It's flavor, but you know, it's 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 the romanticism of of being able to go out and pick it yourself directly from the ground. Um, but yeah, they're, they're they're the same product, but it's they're two completely different products at the same time. And you know, secondary or blemished or ugly fruit. There's such a distrust from the public. I mean, you know. We've we've been kind of educated to select the perfect avocado or the perfect market that it's almost subconscious, and then when you see something that is blemished, it's it's like it's it's you you dis you distrust you almost distrust that ingredient. We um, well we we pick marsh sunfire and we pick it every year, um, and salicornia. I don't know if you get it over there. You might do like um salty shoots so they grow just around the coast and um it grows it's marsh sounds like it grows on the marshlands so the mud flats mm-hmm. and um we had to do this whole like it was this whole like pr piece about why why marsh sandfire is muddy so then we go out and we walk across the mud and we cut it straight from the mud and it goes straight out to customer and we had loads of you know questions and queries are oh, i prefer if my marsh sandfire came through clean and we had to do this whole thing about, you know, it's grown on the mud. This is how it should it should be money. <laughs> if you're not getting it muddy, then it's coming off a carpet somewhere and it's not grown in the wild. You know, somebody's commercially producing this. And I've I've heard of people, you know, like when it's commercially produced, I'm sure there's probably a commercial producer out there it'll, it'll write me. But that it's grown and, um, and it's just fed the nutrients it needs to develop and grow. And it's literally grown on a carpet. And then just before it goes out, you know, it's got really strong mineral flavor and salt flavor from the wild. But just before it dispatches from a commercial grower, they like pump it with salt. So it tastes like salt. So everyone, oh. if we go to a restaurant anywhere and, and we'll give them our mash sunfire, they'll be like, oh, it tastes like iron. It tastes, you know, like really earthy and mineral rich. But that's because we Ooh. don't just pump it with just salt. And that's kind of how it should be. It should be muddy. It should be damaged. It shouldn't be perfectly straight. And it should take a little bit of time to prep because it's the, you know, natural ingredient. Yeah, interesting. I, I we I've I, I live on the coast down in Cornwall, so we um, quite a lot of samphire when it's in season, and of course you see it in the supermarkets too. Um, but you know, uh, in fact, I used to work in a restaurant where we had foragers used to bring it in, and it's amazing stuff. Just to get in a little bit of 
salty water for a minute or two and then off it goes onto a plate. It's amazing. Cool. Good stuff, guys. This is, um, I think, been a super inspiring episode. Have either of you got any recommendations for resources on this topic? You know, how someone, especially someone in an urban environment, might get started with foraging wherever they, wherever it is they live. Yeah. So, in as I as I kind of mentioned before, in Sydney, there's there's a couple of guys who are really well versed in what kind of grows in little suburb. Um, I think reaching out to to those kinds of people, and I'd imagine they're the, the world over. You've got people who have been doing this for years in in you know many many cities across the globe. But um, reaching out to them before you kind of go out picking, you know, the first the first things you see. Begin with the experts, uh, and then reach out to local councils as well. Um, a lot of the time, they'll have they'll have kind of planting everything mapped out on their local website um and then and then reading reading as well there's a great book called the drunken botanist by amy stewart that has uh has a really kind of detailed list of botanicals that are widely used in the uh, in the world of alcohol but yeah i and those would be my recommendations for sure nice i always think start simple so you know Mm. for me it's like start with an ingredient that's wild completely not invasive but you will absolutely find everywhere so you can't really go wrong and something that most kids are used to so like for us it's it's nettles stinging nettles everyone's been stung by nettles so everyone knows how to identify it because they don't want to get stung again it's usually you know effective at planting itself so it's absolutely everywhere you can get to the most pristine garden there will be a little rogue nettle somewhere um and it's a fantastic ingredient. So just start with something super simple like that and do every recipe you can think of just with that one thing. You can even like make a really basic nettle cordial um, or a lemon nettle tea is really nice. So there's like loads of different ways you can take it. So you could just blend it like um, spinach and use it like spinach or make crisps. But for me, it's start with those simple things that you know and just test and test and test. And then maybe next month you move on to one other thing that's just come into season. So like dandelion flowers absolutely everywhere so it's like right i'm going to pick a load of those and test and test and test and within a year you've got 12 ingredients within two years you've got 24 ingredients and you know how many ingredients do we normally cook with i think is there like 20 ingredients is the standard store cupboard yeah yeah great advice something i think getting nettles is especially a good one because they're abundant but also you're kind of getting your own back aren't you yeah you know you stung me so much as a child so now, watch me boil you up into a cordial. Oh, great. Well, look, let's uh, end on that lovely thought of killing nettles. Um, cool. <laughs> Thanks, guys, um, so much. Um, where, can we, where can we find you on the uh, internet or otherwise? Uh, I am on Instagram. I am Evan Strove. So E-V-A-N. S T R O E V E. And James, are you? Uh, we're trying to work out if you're just a total luddite and like you know, just at one with nature, and therefore you know, smartphones and Instagram handles just don't play into this lifestyle. <laughs> are you? Are you on Instagram? Well, this guy that I've just given my basket of mushrooms to to let me lend his laptop. He's waiting for his laptop back now. <laughs> but in the interim, I'll give it back to him. I might set up some social media handles. <laughs> No, we do have it. So it's everything's totally wild UK. 
So we go through the, the company one, but everything's on the set. All, all kind of platforms go through the same thing. Brilliant. Good stuff. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did and you want to hear a little bit more conversation around foraging, do look out for the Bar Chat Shorts, where we feature exclusive content that you won't have heard in the original episode. Anyway, until next time, we will see you later. Bye.